This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. The biggest pandemic in a century has notched up another milestone. One million deaths around the world this week. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we speak to South Africans who were in China when the virus emerged and also lost a family member to COVID-19 in South Africa. Also coming up, a special report from our partners at the Wall Street Journal on six months of living through a pandemic. And you will hear an update on tips to protect yourself from contracting COVID-19 from Discovery Health Specialist Dr. Geraldine Timothy. First, the COVID-19 news-making world headlines. Most of the dead from COVID-19 have been older people. A review published in Nature in late August concluded that mortality climbs after 50 and climbs steeply after 60. After age, which is by far the biggest risk factor, comes sex, with males more at risk than females, reports Australia's ABC News. The epicentre of the disease has moved this year from its beginning in China to other Southeast Asian nations and then Europe, followed quickly by the United States. The hotspots, says SABC News, are now in Southern Asia, with India close to overtaking the US for the highest total number of cases. Latin America is also not far behind. ABC adds that more than 5,000 people are dying every day from COVID-19. The first coronavirus death outside China was a 44-year-old man in the Philippines in February. At that time, around 360 people had died in China. From there, deaths quickly accelerated around the world, peaking in mid-April, with a seven-day average of just under 7,000 deaths. The deadliest single day of the pandemic so far has been August the 14th, with 10,135 deaths recorded, says ABC News. The U.S. has the highest number of confirmed infections and the highest number of confirmed deaths. India is the only Asian country in the top 10, despite the virus's rise in China. New York experienced the first big outbreak in the U.S. and still tops the country for the number of deaths. With an estimated population of 19.4 million, the state of New York has recorded at least... 31,300 deaths. Now that's comparable with Spain, which has a population of just over 46 million, France, which has a population of just under 67 million, and Peru, which has about 32 million people. ABC says that if New York was counted as a separate country, it would have the seventh most deaths in the world. In South Africa, as of the end of September, 16,734 people had died of COVID-19. 674,339 people had tested positive for COVID-19, according to government statistics. Bloomberg reports that U.S. carriers, American Airlines Group and United Airlines Holdings will start laying off a combined 32,000 workers as they contend with the unprecedented collapse in travel demand. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has extended a ban on cruises in the U.S., saying further action is needed before cruises can safely resume. French car sales fell 3% in September in a sign that consumer demand remains depressed in one of Europe's biggest markets. 
Germany will unveil a draft law that will give its employees the legal right to work from home within the next few weeks. Labour Minister Hubertus Heil told the Financial Times that this is the latest example of how the pandemic is altering working life. The law would seek to ensure workers have the option of working from home and regulate home office work. European regulators are set to start an accelerated review of a COVID-19 vaccine frontrunner from the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca. But Reuters reports that the US Food and Drug Administration has widened its investigation of the incident that led to the trial being stopped. US authorities have yet to approve the restart of the trial there. That is one of the trials currently underway in South Africa. The UK's coronavirus outbreak is not under control as hospitalisation and death rates rise. That's according to Boris Johnson's chief scientist. Next, Linda van Tilburg of BizNews catches up with two South African teachers who have been sharing their story of coping with COVID-19, first in China, where they were working on contracts, and then back in South Africa, when they arrived back home to a relative who was ill with the disease. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. BizNews has been following two South African teachers from Durban, Gary and Andy Cronier, who were stuck in China when the coronavirus first broke out near Wuhan from February this year. The Cronyers, who lived in Hangzhou, described their city as a scene from zombie apocalypse. The couple and their young son managed to return to South Africa in March this year, spent time in isolation, lost a family member to COVID-19, and experienced a second country that imposed a coronavirus lockdown. After seven months in South Africa, they want to return to China. We caught up with them as they prepared for their trip and life in China after the virus. The Corniers took us back to where this journey started. To start with, the virus was obviously announced just before the Spring Festival, which is one of the biggest celebrations in China. So there was a lot of celebrations that were supposed to be going on. And for the first time in the history of China, they cancelled them because of the issue of the virus. They didn't want to cause too much spreading. A lot of cities were, there was travel restrictions between the cities, so people couldn't go home. It's like our Christmas. Everybody goes home. And so there was a big problem with that. Hangzhou, where we were, we were put onto hard lockdown pretty soon after that, where we were allowed one person out of the household every two days to go by. Normally, normally Gary went, he's like, I can go walk. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, walk and go there. Because there were no taxis, no public transport, no trains, anything. So I'd walk there. But it was a nice... Open straw. About 1.6 kilometers, so that was good. Thereafter, we managed to get a a flight. Quite expensive, but not too bad. We arrived home on the 9th of March. We did our home quarantine, and uh, it was was wonderful to be back, um, but we only expected to be back for a maximum of a month. We actually were hoping to come back for two weeks, and then China closed their borders. So, Dret, we've been here for almost seven months. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you had a really sad loss, the person who actually picked you up from the airport. Yes, our beloved cousin, he was an absolute amazing man. Um, And he he came to fetch us, and unfortunately, two weeks later, he landed up in hospital, and as a result of it, he did pass away. We actually did a recording with Alec about that. It wasn't our fault. We did not have the virus. We did go and have tests. 
and we've had innocence. three more tests from then because yeah. we inter traveled into um, provincial, provincial and we tested just to make sure that we don't spread anything and it was absolutely negative all three times. It was a great big loss. I think what made it the hardest for us is that nobody could attend his funeral. He yes. had a virtual funeral. And um, that was the heartbreaking moment of we, his, you know, we had photos that were coming through to us. We all sort of gathered as a family in our separate houses yes. and we had said goodbye to him. We actually went to see his wife the other day. Uh, it's the first time because she also had COVID. But you two want to go back to China? Yes. Yes. So we are hoping to go back very soon. On the 28th of March, obviously when South Africa went into hard lockdown, our international flights were stopped, which caused obviously a big problem for us that need to go back to China. Yes. But at the same time, China closed their borders and temporarily suspended all foreigner visas. So that caused a bit of a problem. Now they have reopened the borders. Systematically. Yes, they, they're obviously doing a lot of epidemic prevention control because they do not want imported cases like every other country. So we are sitting with the problem that our visas are now, well, have now expired. And um, the embassy has now said, they released a statement last week yes. that if your visas have expired, since the 28th of March, we can reapply. Reapply and reapply. Because we would have extended them in any event being in China. But we couldn't because we were not in the Republic. Yes. It's, it's a bit of a hassle. We came here for two weeks and we've been here for almost seven months. And on China's side on the news, I've not seen it in local news, South Africa news, is that they've tested all products, you know, fresh produce, frozen products that goes from other countries in. And they found a lot of the actual virus from Brazil, the products from Brazil, salmon, um, yes, the chicken, frozen chicken. And they say it can stay active for 20 days in frozen a frozen product. products. What they've done is a lot of the imported foods, they've banned the import of it for or temporarily suspended it yes. for this reason because they are trying to protect their people, obviously. It's been a long road. We are enjoying being in South Africa. But we would really like to go back now. <laughs> Have you been able to continue teaching children in China virtually? We're still working online, but the time difference is obviously a bit crazy. Yes. So you want to go back, but are there flights back to China? If we could get flights, the lady said to us, 25,000 rand per ticket. Yeah. There's three of us at 75,000 rand. Where she says, beyond the lockdown, a level one We'll be paying about twelve, thirteen thousand. That's 000. sort of normal. Not in, normal. not entirely normal, but better. You know, it's Much more affordable. Better, yes. We are on a group in Facebook, South African teachers that are either teaching over there or wanting to teach there, and it's just crazy. China itself is back to normal. Yes. All our friends that are teaching there, they're like, it's good. In Beijing, uh, you don't have to wear masks yes. if you are with your nuclear group family. Yeah. <laughs> not even families, just if you spend all the time with these people, then you can walk around without your mask. Obviously, on subways and in dense public, uh, you know, dense public places, then you must still wear your mask. Yes, so there's not so a lot of space. People. They're yes. back to normal. Schools have started. So you've experienced both a Chinese lockdown and a South African lockdown. How do they compare? Yes. The Chinese version is, obviously, all of our lockdowns were very strict, but somehow China just has this ability to say, 
don't do it. And nobody tries to push the boundaries. Whereas in South Africa, people are like five seconds before curfew, they're, they're still outside. <laughs> you know, they'll yes. still try and talk their way out of it. In China, there was just simply no option. Yes. It's no. <laughs> but at the same time, they progressed quite quickly. So what do your South African friends and family say when you tell them that you are so keen to go back to China? Really? Why are you going back? Are you going back? I'm like, yes, of course. They're like, why? Why would you? I'm thinking, apart from the virus, it's a fantastic place. Yes. And I actually feel safer in China, to be honest, with the virus. Though South Africa is doing very well in their recovery, their recovery and they're, it's, they're treating it in symptomatic ways. If you look at how many people you knew that had COVID-19, both in China and in South Africa, how did the two compare? We've had four families that we know of that had, the whole family had the virus. We had a lot of our family members had it. Lots of not, di uh, not families that we live with, but cousins and everything, including our one cousin sadly passing away from it. Whereas when we were in China, All of our friends are like, we don't know anybody who had it. Yes, on the <laughs> show where we stay, there was 11 million people, only 781 cases we know of. I have students that were working in Wuhan, and there was obviously a lot of reports saying people were just dropping over dead in droves. And they said to me, they said, Andy, I think I would have noticed. I worked in the hospital. Yes, people died, but not in millions and tens of thousands, like people were saying. So it was definitely media sensationalism about that. Oh, yes. And funny enough, all the teachers that were repatriated from Wuhan, not one of them had the virus. They were in the epicenter. But again, because we all did what was we were told. Yes. Stay at home, go out only if necessary. Yes. If you take, I told Alec about the old people, the retirees, they would stand up half past four in the morning, bitter cold, They would stand up, they'd put on their suits, they'd wash the buildings, the floors, the walls, the railings, the inside of the lifts, the streets, everything was washed. It was an honor to do something. To yes, they the said it was an honor of them to clean the country and to be actually part of it. And every Friday, there would be a big hamper for all the old people for free. In a tent, they must just go and collect By it. By the army tent, yes. yes. Are you worried about the second wave of infections in China? They are expecting a slight a resurgence or a second wave. So it is a little bit worrying, but there's a lot of rules in place and China is actively still testing. Yes, we've already got the rules for when we fly back, we will have to test two days before and show our certificate. We have to isolate after yes. our test. Oh, yes. Once we land, we will immediately have a test two days later and then at five days. Yes. We did have a problem where South Africa was put onto the, the bad list for China. On the 2nd of September, yes. There was a, a flight that went through to Shenzhen and there was a South African gentleman on the plane. Remember, most of the repatriation flights going back is Chinese people, but there were a couple of teachers that were given special invitation letters. I think he was a teacher, I would assume so. He went back and he was positive, even though he tested negative two days before he went out and he then acknowledged to his family that well acknowledged to the Chinese government that he had gone out with his family instead of um, he didn't quarantine, he didn't quarantine after, after, after his test so it caused us a bit of 
So everyone's like, oh, South Africa, you yes. are bad. And with their test in, in China, they don't just do the nose through the nose. They do the nose and the mouth. So they do two swabs. We've had a couple of friends that have gone back <clears> and they've explained some of their their experiences when they arrive in China. Officials come onto the plane, do a temperature test. Hazmat suits. You're greeted by people in hazmat suits. <laughs> and they escort you to the bus? They, they take you through customs. Yeah. Do all your biometrics. Take you to your bus. Take you Straight to, to, a, the... to, to a hotel and confiscate your passport. <laughs> You're yes. not getting out. <laughs> so you said, are you waiting for a visa right now? Yes. yes. Our visa has been, uh, we have applied for a, re, a reapplication of the visa because our employment has not changed. I'm going back to the same school. Yes. So that's no problem. Um, but unfortunately, during this, the Chinese embassy and the visa office does remain closed in South Africa due to lockdown. So we are dealing with everyone via email. It's very frustrating. Yes. We're also trying to deal with Durko. Durko, normally you drive up, you go in, you drop off your document. The next day you go and fetch it. Now I've had to apply for an appointment. I only have an appointment the for the 15th of October. of October. Then I leave my documents and have to make another appointment of which they must acknowledge. It's a quite a time-consuming process. Yes. And thereafter, I still have to go to Chinese embassy. So are your jobs waiting for you? Would the level of employment be the same as before? Gary was in process of applying for his visas and everything. He's on a, a, a family visa with yes. me. And his school obviously stopped giving classes because they just changed to another teacher. Yes. So his visa was put on hold, his work visa. I'm going back to exactly the same school. My school has thankfully carried on with online classes. In the beginning, uh, it was pretty hectic because we were giving classes at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> on a Saturday and Sunday because that was the time of class. Now, there's a couple of parents that have decided not to come back to in-class classes, so we're doing on computer. And then I'm also giving classes where I'm on the board and the children are in the classroom and I have a local teacher to assist me. It hasn't been a full salary because they're happy I'm helping. I'm still not there. So they're paying me more like per class. So I would really like to go back (laughs) and earn a full salary again. So all in all, when do you guys think you will be back there? I'm hoping by no later than the latest end of October. Next, a special report from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, looking back at this year in which the world has lived with COVID-19. Remember back in March when the pandemic turned our lives upside down? People started getting sick. Things were shutting down. Milk, toilet paper, and Lysol wipes were all being rationed at grocery stores. It was scary and disorienting. So here at The Journal, we started talking to people across the country to understand how the pandemic was changing their lives. We talked to Erin, who was weighing getting a paycheck against her family's safety. The day before the shutdown, I literally was crying in the back alley behind work because I was scared. I didn't know what to do because I have to go home every day to my kids. We spoke with Camicia, who was facing eviction for the first time in her life. If it can happen to a person who made comfortable money, it can happen to anybody. It's humiliating and it's degrading for a lot of people. We spoke with Magda, a small business owner, navigating the losses caused by lockdown. What does that mean? Everyone is worried about how we're going to survive. 
It's been months since those first conversations. And so we decided to call back some of the people we spoke with to hear how they're coping. The way their lives have changed paints a picture of a new normal. The shock of the initial shutdowns is over, but the uncertainty remains. One of the first people we spoke to in those early days of the pandemic was a restaurant owner named Magda Sayeg. Magda has a Middle Eastern restaurant in Brooklyn. She borrowed money to get it started, hired a full staff, and after months of preparation, she was excited to actually open her doors to the neighborhood, which she did in February, to a full house. But like thousands of restaurants and small businesses around the country, Magda had to close her doors in March. And last week, we called Magda to see if her restaurant, Magdalene, had survived. I am excited to say I'm pushing through. Magda says takeout food helped save her restaurant. But pivoting to takeout involves some big changes. I opened this place thinking that it was going to be like a Lebanese oyster bar with craft cocktails. None of that could actually be to go. Like everything that, that this chic, cute little Williamsburg restaurant that I planned to have needed to be like everyone's favorite takeout. So that transition was, was really stressful, but also it was kind of a fun challenge. Magda had to rework her menu. Oysters were out. Comfort food was in. And she hit on a quarantine bestseller. Like, I'm apparently known for this falafel fried chicken. Everyone loves the falafel fried chicken. But Magda missed having customers in her restaurant, seeing them share a meal with friends and enjoy her food. Then in June, New York City started to allow outdoor dining. I do actually remember our first outdoor dining Saturday night because I think that the energy was not only felt on the, the restaurant side, it was felt on the customer's side. People were ready, ready to get out, you know? Everybody was happy. It was like being in the desert, starved of water, and then you see an oasis. It felt very well needed mentally, emotionally. Just seeing even a few people sitting down, it felt like that first dollar bill that you frame, you know, all over again. New York City will allow indoor dining again next week at 25% capacity. That means Magda can finally reopen her dining room. But she still decided to hold on to her takeout business. I don't expect everyone to want to dine indoors. In fact, I'm splitting my restaurant into two businesses. The front of the house will be that elegant, chic restaurant that I, you know, wanted to open many months ago. But the back, there's a separate entrance and there's a window that could be a coffee window. I really do believe that takeaway is not going to go away for a while. I think we will make it. I am in the business of hospitality, and I want to make people happy. That's what's so cool about this industry. You see people at their happiest, sharing laughter and conversations with people they love or, or like. And, and I get to be a part of that, and I feel so lucky. And so right now, with the bright yellow tables that I decided to get and the black and white striped umbrellas, I feel like my restaurant looks like a happy corner. I see a future, and so, heck yeah, I'm going to try to make this last as long as I can, you know? At 41 years old, I've worked since I was probably 17. I've never been without a job. I was never without a means to pay my rent. Everything that's happened has happened during the pandemic. Camisia Mitchell lives in Houston, Texas. Before the pandemic, she juggled a bunch of jobs, including food delivery for Uber. 
But as cases started to tick up, she lost work. She got behind on rent, three months' worth, and her landlord moved to evict her from the apartment she's lived in for 14 years. When Ryan interviewed her back in July, Camicia was in the middle of appealing her eviction case. If you do have to leave, what is it going to feel like to leave this place that you've lived in for so long? Well, it'll be humiliation. Humiliation is a natural human response. So it, it will be humiliation, but then I have to get over it and just do whatever needs to be done. Last week, we called Camicia back to see if she was still in her apartment. I'm grateful. I'm still here in the unit. Camicia has been fighting the eviction case and started paying rent again with her family's help. She said she was back in eviction court last week, which, because of the pandemic, has turned into Zoom court. It's really weird. It's, it's weird because, you one, you want to make sure that you leave it on mute and you don't accidentally interrupt anything. And everybody's home from school or work. So there are children out playing. There are lawn service people. So it's noise. So it's like I'm running from the noise to stay, you know, in respect to the courts. Because you still have, if I were in court, I'd have to be quiet and dressed and, you know, in the same manner. So I have to be respectful and punctual. In that Zoom court hearing, Camicia's lawyer told the judge that she's eligible for rental assistance. But they needed more time for it to come through. The judge granted her the time. So we now have a continuation. The continuation doesn't mean that Camicia is saved from eviction, but it gives her time to apply for rental assistance from a community development program. She finalized her application this week, and she's remaining optimistic. I'm actually leaving in God's hands. I'm praying that what is for me is for me. And based on the fact that it is a dire need, I am praying that I'm one of the people that gets it. Nancy Miller lives on a Wisconsin dairy farm with her husband and nearly a 1,000 cows. Back in April, she was far from the coastal hotspots of the virus. But the virus did come to her farm in a totally different way. I mean, I was shocked. I was just shocked. For the first time in her 26 years of dairy farming, the guy who picks up her milk refused to take it. And they said, yeah, we have no place for this milk. How much milk was it? It was 56,000 pounds. How much is that? I can't even imagine it. That's like 6,000 gallons. Nancy had to dump 6,000 gallons of milk into a manure pit on her property. Her milk sat spoiling in the pit because the restaurants, schools, and hotels that normally bought dairy products were all closed. There was nowhere for Nancy's milk to go. Around the country, farms were dealing with similar problems. And that left farmers, like Nancy, devastated. My husband summed it up like this. He said, I can't imagine what God is thinking when he sees milk going into a manure pit. And people are starving all over our world. It was heartbreaking. Now, months later, parts of the economy are back up and running. So I called Nancy to see how her farm is doing. Last time we spoke, it was in April. And at that time... You said you were dumping gallons and gallons of milk. Correct. Is that still happening? That is not happening anymore. And in fact, we only had a dump in April. So we haven't dumped since then, and I don't believe anybody is dumping anymore. Well, that's good news. That is good. Yeah, is business back to normal then? No. 
I mean, the milkman is coming, milk is going, it's getting sent to the stores or restaurants or wherever it needs to go. But I don't know that we'll get back to normal. Things on Nancy's farm have changed significantly. And a lot of that has to do with some decisions she and her husband, Mark, had to make in the early days of the pandemic, when demand for milk plummeted. So we got rid of cows to put less milk out onto the market. We ship them to a processing plant for hamburger. And those cows normally bring $1,100 or, you know, somewhere in that area. Well, because the processing plants couldn't get their stuff to market because of the COVID issues, we were getting like $300 for some of those cows. Oh, wow. So taking a big loss on them. Nancy told me she was feeling more than ever that it might be time to get out of farming. But her husband, Mark, wasn't on board. When he saw demand for milk starting to tick back up, he decided to lean in. He waits till I leave the farm. I just happened to be gone for the day, and he called and he goes, I bought 20 more cows. And I was at a place where I couldn't really talk, and I'm like, what? (laughs) And I said to Mark, why are you getting more cows? His motto that he lives by is, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And he says that to me often. And how many years have you been married? It'll be 39 in November. (laughs) And that's a lot of uh, forgiveness. forgiveness. (laughs) Nancy was upset because they needed to borrow money for the cows. Plus, she's worried if more shutdowns happen this winter, milk prices might fall again. We don't know, like this winter, are all the restaurants going to be open in the winter? Because like our cheese and stuff goes all over the country. So if restaurants in New York aren't open, that affects us. And it's a vicious cycle. It seems like this moment that happened in April when you had to dump the milk has left an enduring kind of scar. It did. It left a cloud over us, I guess. Just a sadness. And we're getting to the point of, why are we doing this? The vicious loop that Nancy and her farm are trying to survive has hit farms across America. Many are closing, including in Nancy's state. 266 more farms closed in Wisconsin this year. We're down under 7,000 farms. It's just, it's sad. It's just harder now. It really is. I guess the thing that keeps Mark going, and me too, is really that we are doing something that is benefiting other people. We are feeding other people. And Mark says that a lot. Somebody has to feed the people. Millions of people have lost their jobs over the past six months. And one of them was Erin Lee. She's a single mom with three teenagers, and they live outside of Flint, Michigan. When we spoke with Erin, she was getting state unemployment benefits plus an extra $600 a week from the federal government. She told us what it was like when that money first hit her bank account. I might have did a little happy dance. I think my kids laughed at me. That was, I think, the most joyous moment that I'd had was just the feeling of I can call and catch up on my bills and go to the grocery store. That was, as silly as it sounds, an amazing feeling. The $600 benefit helped Erin and her family make ends meet, but it expired at the end of July, 
and Aaron is still out of work. So two months later, we asked Aaron how much she's now living on each week. $285. It's you and three kids? Mm-hmm. How does that money get you through a week? Oh, well, it obviously isn't even close to being enough. My bank account's depleting right now, just like a lot of people's. It's kind of frustrating as a parent, you know, when your kids come to you and they ask for reasonable things, kind of way on the scale of one to 10, how important it might be. I'm looking at how like fast my son's growing. I'm like, I think I can wait just a little while longer to get you some clothes. And then there's other expenses that I didn't really think about that are actually kind of costly, I guess. You know, somebody broke their computer. And they needed another one. And I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, stuff like that. So it's like those unexpected things that kind of keep me up at night. Erin would like to get back to her work as a chef, but she's afraid of going back to the restaurant world. She worries about bringing COVID home to her kids, one of whom is immunocompromised. So she's been thinking about other ways to make money. There's a a little market in the city that I live in and they are renting out space. And I was able to secure one of those. So I am going to be doing cast iron artisan breads and organic herbed infused cooking oils. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've never broken out and went into business for myself. There's a lot of things that I'm going to need to figure out coming up here real quick, but I'm kind of excited about it. I mean, it's, it could be very good for me if I can pull it off. (laughs) But if she can't pull it off, Erin will have to start making some bigger changes. If it comes down to it, I will, I'll have to sell the house and think about something else. And that's like worst case scenario that I don't even want to get to, so... That's what I'm trying to stay away from right now. Kudo is a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. And when we talked with her back in March, her work had just changed significantly. Instead of playing on stage for hundreds of other people, she was holed up at home playing on her own. When we called her up again last week, Samile said she was still missing her fellow musicians and a live audience. You know, live music, you never know what's going to happen. You might think that we're on stage and we're just playing music, but then we are paying attention to audience also. Like, you know, we're checking them out. (laughs) (laughs) And especially like when we are really feeling something strongly and audience feel the same way and that's just a experience that you have it's very special but for one weekend this summer sumile was able to relive that special feeling the philharmonic got a handful of musicians together and they drove around the city playing spontaneous concerts on the sidewalk we just drive through New York City and find a spot and kind of unannounced set ourselves and just play. One of the pieces they played was a new one commissioned by the Philharmonic. The name of the piece is Loop. Can you hum it for us? Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear yeah. Me? 
Oh, it's called. It goes like it's very、um, rhythmic and driven. It was a fun piece, actually. The composer of this piece is a man named Carlos Simon. He wrote the piece based on how he was feeling about the mundane routine of being in lockdown from COVID. During the pandemic, he would just get up and he would just repeat so many things every day, just to get going. And how he felt very repetitive, but it's just that's the way to get through the day. The first performance it was in Brooklyn, and people. On the street, was just so shocked <laughs> that we came <laughs> came around, and it was just I couldn't believe how quiet it got on the street. People were just like couldn't breathe, basically. <laughs> What was it like for you to play with other musicians again, finally? Oh, <laughs> that was great. I felt like at home, basically. Yeah, like I felt like my senses. Really came back, and I felt really alive. Coming up, tips to protect yourself from contracting COVID-19, from Discovery Health specialist Dr. Geraldine Timothy. What are you advising your members when it comes to masks? So we've been quite strong and bold in putting out as much messaging as possible to ensure that everyone understands the need to wear masks. You know, we we've had quite a big market drive in terms of ensuring that we've used all of our forums, and and it's not just around the need to wear the mask, but just to ensure that people are wearing it accurately and understand all the myths and、uh, confusion or anxieties around wearing masks as well. And what are the common myths that you're trying to bust? So there seems to be a lot of confusion around, firstly, the need or the wearing of masks over a long period of time. There are people that are concerned that there's going to be this buildup that they speak to around carbon dioxide poisoning, as they call it. And I think that it's important people realise that wearing masks will not cause carbon dioxide toxication in any form. That there'll always be adequate oxygen levels despite the wearing of masks. I think that's been something that's been in and out of the news quite a lot recently, and we've tried to address that, especially around. People who have children that go to school and have to wear the mask for a long period of time. Parents are quite anxious around: is it dangerous or causing any、um, lack of oxygen to them? And the answer is absolutely not. And what about wearing masks more than once? So when you say more than once, the same masks more than once、yes. the same day. So ideally,、yes. we shouldn't wear. 
one mask for more than one day. Ideally, I mean, if we had to just really be stringent, we would say everybody should at least at a minimum own two masks, um, subject to the fact that you're able to wash them every day so that you have a clean one. You know, it's important to understand that the mask is blocking particles from entering, so it, it serves as a filter. So if you don't wash that, you're actually just reintroducing the mask by touching it and putting it back on your face. So you have to change them. You can't wear the same one again. When we look at doctors in hospitals, they wear these very special masks. Tigerberg Hospital, they've actually come up with a reconfigured snorkel just to protect themselves. Is there a different type of mask we need to wear when we go into hospitals or specific settings? The masks are varying in terms of the protection. The lay population or everyday person is expected to wear a cloth mask, and that should suffice for the interactions that we have. If you're working in a hospital setting, and especially if you're working particularly with COVID-positive patients, those particular healthcare personnel need to have a higher level of protection. So the highest level of protection is the N95 mask, which keeps out almost most particles. It's not practical to provide that to the general population. So I think it just depends on the type of experience that you are going into. So if you are a healthcare worker, by all means, you need quite top of the brand or top of the market kind of protection. But as an everyday person, a cloth mask will suffice to protect you. Why is that? Is that because the more COVID around you, the more likely you are to get infected? Or what is? why is there a difference in the efficacy of masks? So there is a, you know, an element of if you're in a, if you're treating patients with who are COVID positive, there's more likely that the particles are able to spread onto you. So there's that ability to have a higher level of protection so that those particles can't how do I say this better? Your exposures are higher. Going off to the supermarket is um, not necessarily likely that you're going to have an exposure, but sitting in a room with a whole lot of people that are positive, there's a much higher probability that those particles are in your uh, space. So the protection there needs to be much more firm as opposed to you going about your everyday activities where there's a possibility you could encounter someone who's positive, but less likely in a situation than in a healthcare setting. So some people find it quite difficult to wear a mask, particularly if you're doing exercise or if you're working in a chef in a hot kitchen, it's quite hard to work with your mouth covered the whole time. What what are the rules for people when they work and when they exercise when it comes to masks? The advice given out is to wear a mask as far as possible. There are some extreme situations which are reviewed individually, and those are people with claustrophobia or certain um, respiratory diseases where, you know, it actually is not conducive. But these are far and few. And I think in, in the majority of the cases, it should be you need to wear it come what may. I think that's the only way to actually have and uh, make a dent in terms of preventing or not preventing but slowing down the spread of COVID. So if we start making exceptions for someone in the kitchen, you know, we're going to start making exceptions across the board. And whilst it is uncomfortable, I think we need to find a mask that fits well enough just to ensure that we prevent the spread of COVID particles. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.